What's your Everest? You know, the highest mountain on earth, a metaphor for a goal that is so big that it scares you to even speak it out loud. That goal that takes more than a season, a year, or maybe takes a lifetime to even accomplish. I'm Colleen Rue, the voice of the mountain and your host as we meet inspiring individuals who know what it's like to set big goals and how to accomplish them. Welcome to My Everest, a 29029 podcast. When you hear the name Zebley around the lodge at 29029, you know who we are talking about. Thomas Zebley, 29029 legend. On the mountain, he's wearing a black bib signifying his alumni status, and he has six badges lining his chest, acknowledging all of the times he's conquered the mountains. Thomas is not only a legend, but a believer in the power of the mountain at 29029. It's something he loves to share. In his role as president of Impact Partnership, he encourages colleagues, partners to climb with him side by side. He knows the lessons of the mountain are going to go far beyond that one weekend and will have a positive impact on their individual lives and their businesses. But there was one partner he had never invited to the mountain, his not-so-silent partner in life, his wife, Jen. In 2020, we were preparing an ascent board that included two Zebleys when COVID-19 threw a wrench in all the plans. Instead of on the mountain at Sun Valley, Idaho in June of 2020, Jen and Thomas walked side by side for 20 hours in the hills and the streets of Georgia to complete the first and hopefully last 29029 virtual event. Jen committed to another year of training and another opportunity to experience the mountain in 2021. Following in Thomas's footsteps came with challenges, of course, but Jen blazed her own path and had her own opportunity to experience the lessons of attempting to climb 29,029 vertical feet in 36 hours. And she did it twice. I tested my limits. I found where my rock bottom was, which was a super humbling experience for me because I don't think I've ever reached that depth before. If you're like me, you might find a bit of yourself in Jen's experience, and hopefully you'll leave with more tools to conquer your own Everest. We know that Thomas has been involved with 29029 since, I mean, when was his first time on the mountain? He did Vermont in 2018, and then he did Utah and Vermont in 2019. We did the virtual hike in 2020, and then last year we did Idaho and Utah together, and then he did Vermont. So he's been in it since the beginning. You came onto the scene last year. I've never done any kind of endurance event past a half marathon distance. And so I was like, okay, I can do this. If If I put my mind to it, I don't like to give up very easily. So you had watched Thomas climb for quite a few years. After his first time climbing, he started bringing a lot of his business associates and partners with him because it was just such an impactful thing for him. And he saw it as an impactful thing for them. And so you get that invitation to come as a spouse to climb in 2020. But of course, COVID-19 happens. Everything goes virtual. You're training hard for a year. And finally, finally in 2021, you guys get to be on the mountain together. What was that like getting there? You know, Idaho, I had built it up so much in my mind. And I remember pulling up to 
the location and I looked up and I was like, oh my gosh, that mountain is humongous. It is so big. I started to freak out a little bit once I, once we got there and I saw it. Thomas was like, it's fine. You'll be fine. And I was like, I just have to get the first one under my belt. Once I get the first one under my belt, I will be able to have set an expectation in my mind of like what it's going to take. And once I have that expectation, I will 100% commit to completing it. And the crazy part is, again, having him be like, oh, you'll be fine. You got this. You could do this tomorrow and everything was really wonderful. And it was very kind and generous of him to say that. And from a physical perspective, probably, but that mentality was just one of those things where I know myself enough to know you got to do it once. And once you do it once then you can like lock it in and then it's just repeat, rinse and repeat. It's Friday and we do the kickoff. And of course, Thomas is, he's got a couple of mountains under his belt. So he's just cool as a cucumber all the time on the mountain. Oh yeah. So how was that first ascent for you? I think the first time we went up the wall, that yes. was interesting. The wall was uh, at the middle part of that hill and it was yeah. the steepest point. Yeah. I don't even know what the incline was, but man, it was steep. It had to have been 45 degrees. I was a ballet dancer when I was younger. I taught bar for a while. I have really good stretching for like my Achilles and everything else like that. The guys were dying. That was one thing that I had as a leg up on them was the fact that I spent years pushing your feet back and pointing your toes. And so having that muscle memory really helped on that part, but that was tough. And the hard part was you could not control the people in front of you. And for me, it's like driving on snow and ice and gravel. You have to just keep going. You can't stop because once you stop trying to get that traction to start up again is just dangerous. And there were rocks rolling down the hill past us. When we got there, you know, you kind of like look up for a second and I just be like, please don't let there be anyone right in front of us. Please don't let there be anyone right in front of us. Just let me get through this part. Then everybody can be right in front of me and I don't care. But that was just one of those things where I knew exactly how I had to do it. So the first ascent was crazy because, you know, everybody's still kind of bunched up together. It's the first one. But I remember when we got to the top, Tom's like, man, we made really good time. And I was like, okay, does that mean we need to slow down? He's like, no, I think we're good. He's like, you know, we'll see how it goes for the next couple ones. We can slow down a little bit if we need to. So Thomas was at the front. I was in the middle. And then Jared was behind us. We were just kind of like in sync. We just kind of kept stepping together. I told him that whenever I go through any kind of tough exercise, if I have to hold something that's like really hard or do something that's just tough, I just start counting in my head until it's over. I paced myself. I counted out loud. I would be like, one, two, one, two, one, two. And so I'd stop after a while because I would get super annoying. That's how we got up the mountain. And so the pace for that actually worked out really, really well for us. So I ended up leading nine through 15 in Idaho. So that was really cool because I was like, here's this guy who's, you know, Mr. 29029. And he's allowing me to lead. Like, I'm so impressed. We started off the event holding hands because he was like, you know, I really want us to start off holding hands and finish up holding hands. So we held hands across the start line. And then when we finished, it was in the middle of the night, there were like four people at the top. And Tanya came up and was up there waiting for us, Jared's Jared's significant other. And she videoed and everything else like that. And that was super cool. So you and Thomas finish Sun Valley and you get the red hats together and such a cool experience to see you guys do that. And I remember you saying that you might see me in Utah and then you decided just 
what, six to eight weeks later that you were going to climb again. In Utah, I tested my limits. I found where my rock bottom was, which was a super humbling experience for me because I don't think I've ever reached that depth before. But how did you find that rock bottom? What was so different? I really and truly think it was the course more than anything. First of all, Utah's longer than Idaho is. Visually, it's harder to see the actual course. In Idaho, I felt like you could almost, not the middle section, but you could see the the start and you could almost see where you finished. It was kind of that visualization to know, okay, well, once we get through this part, then we'll have this other part. And then, you know, it's kind of like the the easy part at the end that you think is the easy part, right? That's what's easy. The first couple rounds and at the end, you're like, oh my gosh, are these roads ever going to end? And did they get longer? Was I not paying attention? They were just always this long. So in Utah, I feel like there were a lot of like switchbacks. So you can't visually see that type of thing. And again, as a very visual kind of person, as far as motivating myself, it was a lot harder for me because the beginning part which I remember Thomas said was the hardest part in Utah. So I went into that kind of mentally prepared, but you'd get up to the top and you'd be like, wow, that was steep. And then you'd think, okay, we're going to get flat again. It looks like it gets flat. And then you turn and it just kept going up and then you turn and it kept going up and you're like, oh my gosh, is this section ever going to be over? So that beginning part was really hard. You know, the fire road is, that's not that tough. I mean, it's very long and it only gets longer each round, but that's not a, complicated part of the walk. So do you think it was more the mental challenge in Utah than it was the physical challenge? Yes. Well, I think too, we replicated what we were doing from a nutrition standpoint in Idaho to Utah. And with Utah being longer, we should have taken in more calories. So I think that I really hit my rock bottom. Idaho, I was always able to kind of like eat and not really feel bad or anything else like that. And in Utah, it got to the point where I was like, I, I like, I cannot eat anymore. I, it's just uncomfortable. I just didn't feel very good. It's a little bit higher elevation too. I don't think I had any kind of elevation sickness or anything, but I think it was just all those things together. So I remember we were on, what was it? Lap 11? Cause there's 13 for Utah, right? I think we were on 10 and Thomas and I were walking and he's like trying to talk to me and still kind of like keep me pepped up. It's like the middle of the night. Our plan again was to go all the way through like without stopping. So we were going to finish in the middle of the night again. And he started talking to me and he was like, are you all right? I said, listen, at this point I can either hike or I can talk to you, but I cannot accomplish both at the same time. So I'm going to focus on this one. He's like, okay, all right, I got it. So he would like talk some, but I, I was really just kind of starting to think, man, I'm not feeling that great. I'm just, I'm getting tired and I don't want to hurt myself because that is not what I came here to do. And I will, I joked from the very beginning. I was like, I don't care if I have to pull myself across the rocks with my arms and bleeding everywhere. I will finish whatever it is that we are going to do. I will finish. We got done with 10 and then we started back up on 11. And I was like, I really, and truly am not feeling that great. And he's like, all right. He said, well, why don't we go back, let you rest for a little bit. And then we'll come back. We'll only have two left in the morning. We'll have like the last one and then the red bib lap. And I was said, okay. I was going through a lot of emotions at that point because I was super disappointed in myself that I did not finish exactly the way that I had planned. Even though we only had two more left, there were hours and hours the next day 
we weren't going to be taking some extended rest or anything. We were going to sleep for maybe three or four hours. I was already in like a bad place mentally because I had not done what I came there to do. I, it had not gone exactly according to my plan. So we got up at like four o'clock in the morning, the next morning, putting our headlamps on as the light was coming up. And we just were like, all right, let's go ahead and do it. Idaho for me was the finish was like the celebration. Cause I finished it exactly like I thought I was going to. And Utah for me was really kind of bittersweet because even though I was super proud of my accomplishment, I was super proud that I found like my rock bottom place. I was, I was really disappointed. Thomas was upset that I was disappointed because he's like, look what you just accomplished. And I'm like, I'm just going to have to work through it. Like I'm going to have to like really process in my brain to get through it because it showed me that even when you make the most extensive plan in your mind and you know what your body can do and your body is going, 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 if it doesn't go according to plan, you've got to be able to accept that and embrace it and still celebrate your win because it was a win at the end of the day. I mean, we finished. We finished in 23 hours on feet. It was 25 hours total. As you had to process the disappointment that you felt, did it take you getting off the mountain and really having to work through that? Or when did you finally come to terms with that? I think I did. I just think it took me a lot longer than I thought it would. You know, and and Thomas is like, look what you accomplished and you've done all this. You did two back to back and like how many people do that in the same year you hadn't even planned on doing a second one. And I have very high standards for myself and like a very, very harsh inner critic. And so that was like my joy stealer. And it took some time to come to peace with it. At the end of the day, I was incredibly proud of what I did accomplish. I did finish. I finished holding hands with my husband, walking across the line, having that celebration moment that we had missed the first time. So I got like the best part of it right that time. And so that is what I had to tell myself. If we hadn't stopped, we would have finished exactly the same way that we did in Idaho. And I would have never gotten to see what it was like to finish during the daytime because every other hike that he had done, he finished during the daytime. So he already had kind of that point of view. And I think he walked into it with a different challenge for himself than I didn't know what to expect. So I think his challenge was I finished during the day. We're going to, we went all the way through when we were in Utah the last time, we're going to go all the way through, but we're going to go faster this time. So I think that that's kind of where the expectation was. And I was like, well, yeah, for sure. I mean, look, we just knocked out Idaho. I mean, no problem. We got this covered. And so I also think I took a lot of guilt on myself that I didn't allow him to finish the way that he wanted either or the way that he had planned. And he was very kind and said, that's, do not worry about that. That has nothing to do with it. Like I told you we were going to start together. I told you we were going to finish together. And that's exactly what we did. I think it's so interesting that you bring that up because we've been talking a lot on our podcast about how we define success. And Mm -hmm. I think you're hitting on that exactly, that our definition of success needs to be reframed sometimes. Yes. And that's really important because I would look at you and be like, Jen, you were so successful. You did all of this. You did, just like Thomas was telling you, you did two back to back. Your children are watching you accomplish this. Even if you gave it your all out there and it didn't work out the same, that's still a measure of success. But why is that so hard in the moment, especially for us as women? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Because I think that men are more critical of themselves when it comes to to work in general, like just as a sweeping generalization. 
and women are more critical of ourselves in like a performance perspective. And I don't mean from like an athlete point of view, but more about, are we delivering on every, on the expectations we've set on ourselves? Are we delivering on the expectations that other people have set on us? And if we fall short in any of those categories, we're emotional beings. So it hits twice as hard where a, a guy might be able to better compartmentalize. And I feel like that's typically one of my really good skills is being able to compartmentalize things. I think being physically worn down and just having this plan where I was like, it's, it's never not going to work exactly like I think, you know, it's just never even crossed my mind. And for that to happen, it was just like a gut punch. I just think that we're so used to delivering. It's, it's just really hard when that delivery looks different than what you do. I mean, think about it when you go to have a baby, right? You probably have in your mind, this is exactly how it's supposed to go. And I remember whenever I had my daughter, somebody said something to me and I said, well, I definitely don't want to have a C-section. Like I want to have the baby the way that naturally the way that I'm supposed to have her, because I would feel like I'm almost like a failure because I couldn't make it happen like that. We have no control over that, like at all. And you have these expectations in life and you're so used to delivering and your success being measured on the way that you deliver and how close to your plan you can deliver with it, that it's just a tough situation when anything changes from that. And the craziest part is normally I'm a very flexible person. I'm pretty easygoing, relatively free spirited. I'm very competitive, super harsh on myself. So it's interesting to me that that was what was the outcome from that. This whole conversation is interesting because I feel like you're sort of in my head a little bit. I've had the same exact experiences, whether they're athletic or you talk about childbirth. I have the same exact feelings. This is my plan and I need it to be executed because if it's not, and if this baby isn't doing what I expect this baby to do, I'm supposed to feed it every two hours. I'm supposed to change its diaper. And I've never thought of it that way where women are always judging themselves on their performance within Mm -hmm. the expectations that they set up or that they think other people set up for them. And so bringing that to this, it makes uh, so much sense where it's like, wait, my, my plan's not working. So how can we train our brain to be more flexible? And, and I don't even think it's that flexibility that you're talking about in life where, oh, I can go with the flow. But truly that critical performance-based flexibility to say, this is the outcome I desire. I'm going to work hard for that. I'm going to give it my best effort. And that's what my success is going to be judged at. At the end of the day, did I leave it all on the mountain? Did I do my best as a parent? Did I give everything that I possibly could to my family, to my work instead of that finish line? Yeah. It's as always a work in progress, right? It's one of those things that I will probably be chasing for the rest of my life. But again, my new measure of success is have I made progress. Knowing myself like I do, I will probably never be to the level where that will completely go away. But if I can make even small pieces of progress, that's a win. And so I'm going to celebrate that little win because I feel like the big win of the whole thing is an insurmountable task. There you have it. My Everest, the latest episode of the 29029 podcast. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about 29029 events or read more stories from an incredible community of individuals, you can head over to 29029everesting.com. That's 29029everesting.com. I'm Colleen Rue, the voice of the mountain. Keep climbing. We'll meet you at the next summit.